Hello, this is Mike Riley, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. I am glad you're along for another edition of Clubhouse Conversation. It's Davo, and this is the place where we catch up with all your favorite current and former Royals players and umpires now? What? Yes, it's our inaugural edition of Umpire Chats here on Clubhouse Conversation today, and we speak with a legend to kick off the series. That's former MLB umpire Mike Riley. And you probably know that name if you've been a longtime baseball fan like myself. Mike Riley umpired in Major League Baseball from 1977 until 2010. Came in as an AL umpire back in 77, so he spent a lot of time uh, umpiring Royals games here in Kansas City. We'll talk plenty about that. I asked you for several of your questions for umpires on Facebook and Twitter. I'll ask many of your questions. We'll talk about his opinion on different things, about ejecting managers, about heckling, about how he got to the big leagues, a little bit about his story and background as well. He's a great guy, Mike Riley, umpired over 4,500 games, the sixth most in Major League history, and he joins us right now on Clubhouse Conversation. Mike, first of all, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. And second of all, how's early to mid-April treating you in 2019? Well, early April of uh, 19 is fine. Uh, I find myself, we're still in Florida before we head up north, and now there are just a little less than a month before we head up north. And uh, so we're still in Florida, and things are good. So Very nice. So you get to spend part of the year in Michigan and part in Florida. You're doing it the smart way then. Yeah, I, well, I tell you what, uh, a year before I retired, I actually bought a piece of property down here and then built a house, and and uh, that made retirement a lot easier because we didn't have to spend the winters up north anymore, so it was good. So we spent six down here in Naples, Florida, and, and then we go back to our home, which is Battle Creek, Michigan. Very nice. Well, one thing I've always respected about you, um, you've always you know done stuff with Big Brothers, Big Sisters. You've worked with the food bank as well. Are, are you still involved with those two things? I am. Uh, um, I am, and we've done various different things down here in Florida also to keep us busy and doing things like that. I, You know, we've been very blessed in our life to have 30, 39 years in uh, professional baseball and 34 of those at the major league level. And so I feel that we have an awful lot to be thankful for and an awful lot to uh, pay back. So, uh, uh, like I said, I mean, the old Addie's baseball was very, very good to me. Well, it was very, very good to me. I'll tell you that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned Battle Creek, Michigan, um, which is called the breakfast cereal capital of the world. So I love that uh, Hall of Fame broadcaster Ernie Harwell used to call you Cornflakes Riley. So did you get to know Ernie pretty well throughout the years? Uh, I can honestly say I did. Ernie was probably, of all the people I came across in baseball, was the one I was most impressed with by the way he carried himself. Uh, I mean, he was I mean, a legend and one of probably the greatest broadcasters of all time. And he was the nicest, most uh, caring, giving man I, I, I met in baseball. So I'd have to say 
I respected him more than anybody that I ran into all my years in baseball. And uh, kind of funny story, he called me Cornflakes Riley because, well, obviously from Battle Creek, Michigan, but in 1982, Kellogg's actually put my image on their Kellogg's box. They did a special that year with uh, baseball. The San Diego Chicken was on for two months, and then Fernando Valenzuela with the Dodgers, was, they had a player on there, and then they wanted to get an umpire. So so with my connections to Battle Creek and the Kellogg Company, they asked me to do it. And so that came out in 82, and that's when Ernie started calling me Cornflakes Riley. <laughs> I had no idea. That's awesome. <laughs> that's very cool. So, yeah. so are all the Kellogg cereals made there then in Battle Creek? Is that how that works? Yeah, they have a couple. Uh, Omaha actually has a factory out there where they uh, they do some uh, they they make cereal there also. But Kellogg's is at their national headquarters. Uh, they not only make it, but uh, their headquarters is in Battle Creek. So very great nice for our our town. I'll tell you that. Well, I've become an umpire nerd in recent years. So I I purchased seven umpire autobiographies. I've got the Eric Gregg, the Ken Kaiser. Al Clark, Davey wow. Phillips, Derwood Merrill, Dave Pallone, and Doug Harvey. Have you read any of those autobiographies of those umpires? I have not. Uh, um, uh, I have not. Uh, there, was an, there was an older one by the name of Ron Luciano, who I happened to work with my first year in the big leagues, which was back in 1977, and he was quite a character himself. And uh, he had a book that came out, uh, but I no, I haven't read any of the other ones. Have you ever considered writing one yourself? No. Really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe I was never approached by it. I uh, uh, didn't want to compromise anything or, you know, maybe protect somebody or not protect somebody. And, uh, you know, I, I, that, was, that wouldn't be for me. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, how about, is your nephew Brian still umpiring, too? Uh, no, he's not. He retired. Uh, or not re- yeah, he, he just retired. He had spent about four or five years in AAA and wasn't going uh, to the big leagues. And so he uh, uh, he quit, and uh, he actually went to work for Edward Jones and has done quite well for himself. So uh been married now and has a couple small children so i think he made a good decision how tough is it for an umpire to make it up from the minor leagues i mean is, is, is it like a you know you, you see those guys in, in minor league baseball obviously you know the writing's on the wall once you hit 26 27 and you haven't been moved up do you kind of know that as an umpire too is there only like a certain window where you really you know could move up to the majors absolutely uh, i was very fortunate myself i only had to spend four and a half years in the minor leagues but I would say the average day for an umpire is probably almost eight years now, something like that, where you have to spend. Some guys can go a little quicker. Some guys can even stay a little longer. But uh, it's the percentage of umpires making to the big leagues is far less than players. Obviously, we have less jobs. Uh, we only have 68 full-time major league umpires. And you consider all the minor leagues that we're trying to get these guys out of and up to the big leagues. So the percentages are, are very tough. And, uh, and like myself, I, my career in the big leagues was 34 years. So um, we don't retire after five or six or, or, you know, lose your skill factor after five or six. And so our guys hang on till they're, you know, they're quite a bit. Well, I, usually most guys will retire at 60. We have some guys that, 
want to continue working as they can, but uh, we're fortunate with our pensions and the way things baseball's done for us in our negotiations that uh, we're able to retire at a younger age now if we want to. Do you find yourself, I mean, do you watch much baseball anymore these days? Yeah, I, I watch baseball. I mean, uh, I mean, I used to watch it for different reasons. I, I wanted to learn from other people. I wanted to see how players re- react and, and know certain personalities of players. And, and I'd watch other umpires because I think I can learn from other people. It doesn't matter if you're a senior umpire and you see something a younger umpire does you like. I think those are things you have to do. So uh, when I was working, I, I watched probably more baseball uh, then than I do now, but I still love the game. I still like to watch it. And uh, if it's on, I watch it. Well, you've always loved baseball. Back in Battle Creek, Michigan, you went to St. Philip Catholic High School. You played baseball there. So was that always your number one sport growing up? Well, you know, I grew up with uh, four other brothers that were very athletic, so it was kind of whatever sport was in the, in, in season, but I always had a love for baseball. Uh, I can remember my father taking me to games and uh, and as a young guy and I remember getting my brothers in the side yards and playing wiffle ball and everything that goes on with baseball so I, I had a special love for foot, uh, for baseball there's no doubt about it but uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to play football basketball and baseball but uh, baseball is a sport I loved and it's one I you know it's kind of funny how I got started umpiring in baseball I actually was referee in intramural college basketball for spending money and uh and i had a couple coaches of mine think mike is you know and i was still playing baseball in the summer leagues and stuff and they said well why don't you love baseball so much why don't you think about umpiring because you referee basketball and i said well you know uh i really you know i'm busy and but i took a semester off school long story short and i went to the umpire school and was fortunate enough to get a job and then spend five years in the minor leagues doing something i loved and and for the love of the game, and and then obviously getting to the major leagues was, you know, the goal that I set when I decided that I was going to start this uh, umpiring career. So I was very fortunate to do that. What a great story! So where were you at in college? Then where did you actually go to college at? Well, I was I started at, I started playing baseball at the junior college there in Battle Creek, which was called Kellogg Community College, and then uh, the semester I took off school was from Western Michigan, and. Uh, and uh, it just, like I said, I had a bunch of my coaches just say, Mike, you know, you should do this, and I should do it. And I said, so, okay. And and I did it, and uh, much to my dad's, uh, <laughs> he thought that was a bad decision. Uh, but uh, as we look back, it worked out, and uh, everything was good. Now, you always hear, you know, minor league baseball travel stories from the players I interview. How did you guys travel back in the day in the minors? Did you have any uh, funny travel snafus back then? Well, yeah, I mean, we traveled by car, um, and you had a partner, just two of you, in in A-ball and double-A. You would just travel. You'd finish a game in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, and have to be up to uh, Quebec City in Canada for a game the next day, and you would finish that game on a Tuesday night and work a Wednesday night up in Canada. So travel was a, a little different, put a lot of miles on cars, and you got to know your partner extremely well because back then you weren't making a lot of money, so you would share hotel rooms, and you would 
you just did everything with your partner back then. And uh, I was very fortunate in my minor league uh, years that I got to work with some really incredible people and, uh, and, and good friends. So it, it worked out real well for me. You become a really close to the person that you go out on the field every day and compete against. And then you, you know, you're living with him, you know, 24 seven. So it worked out good. And, uh, but I'll be honest with you, when I went to AAA, uh, we went to three umpires and because the pay was a little better, we were able to get all our own hotel rooms and, uh, kind of enjoyed the privacy of the single room again. So <laughs> it, it, it worked out real well, but it makes you appreciate your minor league years. Yeah. You you're go to the major leagues and you see what, the difference is and it uh, it really makes you work hard for what you get oh i'm sure so 1975 and 76 had to be good years for you so the 1976 caribbean world series you umpired over there what do you remember about that oh gosh there's so many things i remember about that <laughs> uh first of all i'm on this little uh i was 25 years old so i was very young when i first went over there and uh and to see the enthusiasm that they, that they have in the Dominican and uh, Dominican Republic. And I mean, games where fans would literally climb up the, the light poles to watch a game outside the stadium. You'd have, you'd see fans, you know, sitting on the light poles watching games. And it, the Latin American baseball is really, I mean, they love their game and they're very passionate. So, uh, it's a tougher situation to be in when you're over there and the home team loses, let me tell you that. So, <laughs> but uh, I love my years in Puerto Rico. I worked there two winners, and then I, I did work that Caribbean World Series one winner also. Yeah, that's great. And then also in 76, like, you know, you did the American Association where I believe Omaha was in there, right? The the Royals back then. And do, you, do you have any good memories yeah, of Rosenblatt? Yeah, played it uh, um, there in Omaha, beautiful little ballpark, and uh, – and uh, and now, of course, the College World Series is played there, and uh, Omaha was a great, great baseball city, and still is, obviously, with what they have, what they host during the summers. And it was good for me because my parents uh, at that time were from Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, so whenever I was in Omaha, I would uh, get a chance to get home and. My parents would uh, always host the whole crew, so all three of us would run over to Lincoln and stay there in my parents' home, and then uh, we'd commute from Omaha, from Lincoln to Omaha and back, and it was always fun to get home and see the parents and uh, get out of the hotels for a little bit. So I always talk to players, and they tell me the moment they got the call up to the big leagues. You know, they got the, the you know the call from somebody or whatever. How about you? So 1977, you joined the AL. How did you find out that you were going to the big leagues? What was that story? Well, Dick Butler was the supervisor at that time, and uh, uh, that was uh, really the spring training that I was down there for the audition. I knew I had a chance to get a job, and that they were looking at me. And uh, so just about every game in spring training, I had Mr. Butler at my games, and uh, he liked what he saw and um, and then offered me a contract that year. So um and Dick Butler, to old-time baseball fans, was quite quite a guy. He was the president of the Texas League, and and he was an owner of a franchise in the old Texas League, and then he uh, worked for the commissioner's office and then became supervisor of Major League Umpire. So uh, I was very fortunate that he kind of took me under his wing and 
and uh, was good enough to, you know, think that my ability was good, and he signed me to a contract. So uh, I owe a lot to him. I, in fact, I was just thinking about him the other night when uh, I met a guy by the name of Butler, and I was telling him that I got to the major leagues because of Dick Butler. So, but uh, that's kind of how I got there. Uh, like I said, after five years in the minor leagues, uh, going from Florida to the east to the Eastern League, and then the American Association, which went out to Denver and Omaha and Des Moines. And so it, it was good when I first got that call and after spring training in 77 to, to the fact that I was going to the big leagues. I was one happy man, I'll tell you that. Absolutely. So you wore number 31 during your career. Is that just randomly assigned, or can you choose some of those? I chose 31. That was my high school number in all of the sports that I played. And uh, my older brother, Tim, was always number 32. And uh, so I went one step below him and went to 31. And when we first started in the American League, we didn't wear numbers. So I think maybe after three or four years, they decided to put numbers on umpires. So we, the current umpires on the staff got to pick the numbers they wanted. And uh, nowadays, they're pretty much assigned to a new umpire. They just assign them a number. But back when I was there, you got to pick your number. Now, so you and Steve Palermo, I think, were two of the first umpires to not wear the outside chest protector, right? How come that was? Well, that was, yeah, Steve, uh, you know, what a good guy Steve was. And I know the people in Kansas City think very highly of him, Mm -hmm. and they should. But uh, And we lost him way too early. But... uh, um, Steve and I worked together in the minor leagues. Where I worked in Double A with him, and I worked in Triple A with him. So we were, we were uh, we worked quite a bit together. So, but uh, back in '77, they were still wearing the outside chest protector. But if you were coming up, and just because I was going to the American League, as if the fans out there know, in the old days. The umpires used to wear that, what we call the outside balloon chest protector the, that came across your chest. They're nothing like the ones the guys are now wearing now, or which is underneath the shirt. So we actually had an option to do whatever we wanted to do. And I had worked in the minor leagues with the inside chest protector. So I wasn't about to uh, change and uh, because it, it, did change your strike zone quite a bit with that outside balloon protector you stood a little more erect behind home plate so the high pitch looked a little better and i think it was a little tougher to get the low pitch correct so uh for me the inside chest protector was the way for me to go and i was fortunate that the american league at that time was let us use it instead of staying with that old uh the outside chest protector Okay, that makes sense. Now, you mentioned Steve Palermo a little bit. You know, yeah, like you said, he's obviously a true American hero and somebody we love here in KC. Talk more about Steve and what kind of man he was. Uh, Steve was a great kid, uh, high energy. When he first came out, we went to umpire school the same year together, 1972. So Steve and I kind of came in the game together. And uh, we, that first year of the Instructional League, him and I went together and, uh, there was a guy by the name of Barney Deary who was the director of all minor league umpires, and uh, and he liked Steve a lot. Steve was from Massachusetts, and so was Barney Deary. And uh, Barney, I think, liked me because I was Irish. <laughs> and so we got along real well, and he had always said, you know, you and Palermo are going to go to the big leagues. But he says, 
they'll never put you two together on the field. He said, uh, <laughs> which, which wasn't, which wasn't true because I was with Steve the year he got shot. And, uh, but uh, he, he was a really, really a good person, uh, very high energy class, came from a great family, his brothers and his sister, Ann, and his mom and dad. When we were in the Eastern League, we would stay at their house whenever we got to Pittsfield, and, uh, and, and we, we spent, I spent a lot of time around his family, and they were just a class, class family. So uh, Steve did a very good job. Uh, promoting his family and loving his family and very, 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 very much missed. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't realize you were on that crew that year um, that that happened. Yeah, I I actually, I remember it vividly. I got a call early in the morning, ran up to the hospital, and and actually at that time, uh, George Bush Jr. was the owner of the Texas Rangers because it happened in Arlington. And... uh, or in Dallas, actually, where it was, but the ballpark was in Arlington, and uh, and I I got to the hospital, and and Mr. Bush was there before I was, so um, yeah, yeah, so wow. quite a night because usually we, Steve and I and Richie Garcia after almost every game would go out and either have a bite to eat or something, but that night Richie Garcia was very tired, and. Uh, and I had friends from Houston that came in, so I stayed out in Arlington, and uh, Richie went back to the hotel, and Steve went down to uh, the restaurant that we usually would eat after games in, and, and he, he was by himself that night, which probably didn't happen more than once or twice that whole year, so, yeah, and then the rest is what happened, so. Wow. Well, another guy that I know you knew uh, I think you knew him pretty well. I think you went to umpire school with him. Did you know Durwood Merrill pretty well too? What was he like? I knew Durwood. He was he was a character. He uh, we used to go around. He loved college football and he loved Oklahoma. And of course, I loved college football and I loved Notre Dame. So we would go round and round. And he was from Hooks, Texas, a town of about I don't know, couldn't have been much more than a hundred people and. I remember his funeral. That uh, he, might have, he might have been from a small town, but boy, did he have people at that funeral. And he, yeah, again, another really, really loved by his community and his people. He did a lot of things for that small little town of Hooks. I remember he, he got when the Rangers built their new stadium. They had to do something with their lights, and I don't know how Dorrit ever got through, but he got the lights moved from there to Hooks. Texas to his high school baseball field. So huh. uh, uh, he, he did, uh, Derwood did a lot of things. And he was a funny guy. He was a, he, he was a throwback to the old days. I'm excited to read his book here soon. It's on It's on my counter. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll have to read that one too because, like I said, I, I worked for Derwood uh, on and off for three or four uh, years also. So, yeah. and, and like I said, he was a character. Now, a couple other guys before we get on to other things here that we've lost in recent years. Did you know AL umpire guys? Did you know Ken Kaiser or Jim McKeon very well? Uh, yeah, I knew Kenny real well, um, and I uh, had actually worked on a couple of his crews together also, and uh, he suffered suffered from diabetes and uh, wasn't in good health the last few years. And then Jim McKean, uh, I didn't know Jim that well. I didn't work with Jim very, very much, uh, spring training games and stuff. 
but I knew he had been sick uh, here recently, so I was sad to hear of his passing. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about some of your biggest career accomplishments, at least from the outside. Um, you umpired in four World Series, 84, 92, 02, and 07. I, I'm sure 84 was probably your favorite since the Tigers won, and you're from Michigan, obviously. So what are your favorite memories of that first World Series? Okay. Well, one thing about what you just said, though, 84 is my proudest moment is working your first World Series. But I really didn't care if the Tigers won or not. So. Right. Uh, because, uh, of course, the Padres, they were there. And, uh, it, it, you know, it was a phenomenal World Series for me because I was raised in the state of Michigan. Uh, that's where my father took me to, to baseball games. And so I went to that stadium as a kid. And, and then to be able to work my first World Series there and have my uh, parents in the stands. And I, I had, like, I don't know, I could have had 50 tickets for opening, the, you know, the game. Game, game three was there, the first two were in San Diego. And uh, so that, that probably was the biggest thrill, I, you know, at that time. I, and my wife was, uh, I had just gotten married, and so my wife was there. And, and uh, uh, yeah, working in your home stadium as a kid growing up and going to that field and idolizing, the, you know, the major league players, thinking that someday that's what I wanted to be. Um, and then uh, to, to end up working there as an umpire and working the World Series, was that was by far the biggest thrill of my career. Now, what is this that I read about you being offered a bat because there was a celebration going on in case you got attacked? Is that a true story? Uh, yeah, that is a true story. <laughs> After that World Series, uh, which Detroit won in the fifth game when Gibson hit the big home run, um, Detroit back in there celebrated all the wrong ways and uh, they were turning over cars and uh, the fans all rushed the field and there was no grass left. If we had to play another game the next day, they, we wouldn't have been able to play in that stadium, I remember. But yeah, just walking out, uh, uh, the clubhouse attendant said, here, here, just in case something happens, take a bat. And we, we carried bats out because there was a, a full-fledged riot going on just outside of Michigan Avenue there. Wow. Michigan and Trumbull, where the stadium was there in Detroit, and uh, they hadn't, you know, they were great baseball fans, but at that time it was easy to kind of go the wrong way with it, and they did, and so we just carried them out with protection, and we never had to use them or anything else, but I, there was, we, we did take baseball bats out with us. Okay, so here's a question I always wonder. So umpires are obviously pros. You guys never root for one team or the other, but you know, obviously every single umpire out there had a favorite childhood team growing up and, you know, family and friends that might be a fan of a certain team and on the other side, you know, so I mean, do you ever struggle did you ever like tr to, to try to eliminate bias? Did you ever try to overcompensate or undercompensate do you feel like? Like was it ever difficult for an umpire to eliminate any bias either way? Well, yeah, I mean I mean, that's a great question because, like I said, I mean, uh, Steve Palermo grew up in Boston, and his family are the biggest Red Sox fans. And, in fact, if you live in Boston, you have to be a Red Sox fan. Well, if you live in Michigan, you're going to root for the Tigers. They have a great fan base there also. So as a kid, I was kind of a Tiger fan, but it was kind of funny. Growing up, I enjoyed the game more than I did – being a fan. In other words, for me to go out, I'd rather go out and play a game myself than go watch a game, mm -hmm. even though I enjoyed watching Major League Baseball, don't get me wrong. But if I had to prefer it, I'd rather myself go out and play a game. So, But now it comes time when you go 
you know, start in the minor leagues and all of a sudden you get a franchise and they wear the Detroit uniform. Well, you, you just have to realize what you're there for. And, it, you know, it might take a period of time to kind of get rid of who you would be a fan of growing up. And for me, it didn't take anything. So I had a job to do when I was out there. And that job was to work that game as impartially as I, I could. And it was very easy to do because, you know, people always say umpires, and I always say, no, we're very competitive people. And I said, we have to be competitive to the game. And that means going out and trying to get everything right, every pitch, every safe or out, every trap ball. And so you go out there and you try to compete against the game. And so when I'm out there competing against the game to do the job to the level that I want it done, you, you don't have you don't have time to think about who just hit, who's up, or whatever. So that that is never a problem for an umpire to get rid of that. Okay, makes sense. Now, how about the other three World Series, '92, '02, '07? Any of those stick out? Any great memories from either of those three? Well, you know, the biggest memory to me is family and having. Uh, you know, I, I have four children and they all grew up in the locker rooms and world series. And, and, uh, so having them around and then just for the mere fact that you were picked to work those world series or those playoffs, uh, I was fortunate in my career. I, I think I worked like 23 different postseason events and, and, and that's, that's a lot of postseason assignments. So, that, that made me, it, it told me that I was doing something right and that, uh, and to get to work those events. So just the satisfaction of working and being picked to do those was, uh, that's, that's what I look back and, and those are my proudest moments. Also, you did uh, four All-Star games, 82, 93, 2000, and 2010. You had the plate, too, in, in 2000 and 2010. Any, any particular memories of those uh, All-Star games? Is it just family again? Yeah, I tell you what, uh, in Atlanta when we had that one, uh, and the last one, because I knew it was going to be my last one because I, I hadn't announced my retirement, but I think I knew I was going to retire the last one, so I knew that was it. And, and I had all my children there again, and they were in the dugout. But the one we had in Atlanta was especially cool because they usually have a theme for every game. And that year, was the theme was the year of the kids. So when the players were introduced, they all walked through center field with their families. And, and it was really cool to see all the players coming out and all their children. Well, when the umpires were introduced and came to home plate, we brought our families with us. So here I'm at home plate with my wife and my four children, and we're standing there for the national anthem because, like I said, I was I was the home plate umpire, and it's it's just us out there. And I know all the sacrifices that my family gave up for me to be able to do what I did for a living. And then to have them at home plate before that game with me was, I know the, my kids enjoyed it, but I think I enjoyed it a lot more than the kids. Oh, that's awesome. And then, um, yeah, it, it really was awesome. And the kids all wore, they all had special jerseys for the kids to wear. And, uh, it, it was really thrilled. Baseball did a phenomenal job that year. And I was 
I was glad I was uh, working the plate. My kids and my wife could be there with me. Yeah, there you go. Well, you were also the third base umpire for David Wells' perfect game back in 98, and then the second base umpire for Mark Burley's no-hitter in April of 2007. So I'm guessing besides the, you know those types of events, the All-Star Game, the World Series, is that kind of an umpire's dream and goal is to be a part of history like that with a perfect game or a no-hitter? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, I don't know how many uh, no-hitters I had in my game. The, the one perfect game... I, I, that was the only one I had that was a perfect game. But I actually was on the field for Dave Burley's uh, uh, when he had uh, he pitched two no-hitters in Chicago. We just happened to be there for both. Oh. And then I know we were in uh, Miami for one when Annabelle Sanchez pitched a no-hitter. And we had that game. So I, I really don't know how many I was on the field for, but I'll bet I was there for, oh, maybe eight, nine, ten, something like that, I'll bet. Oh, I didn't know that. Were you behind the plate, any of those? You know, that's funny. I was never behind the plate. I had, I'm trying to think this pitcher for Seattle, little left-hander, and he went, uh, He went. I had him play two times, and we got into the ninth inning both times, and he gave up a hit. <laughs> so, uh, but no, I was never never behind the plate. Nor, now, I had him in the minor leagues. I bet I had three or four in the minor leagues behind the plate, but in the big leagues, uh, I, I was never back there. Okay, so I found an article when I was researching this. Um, so a fan attacked you once at Yankee Stadium when you were at third base, and then Craig Nettles like punched him and got him off you. Did that happen, or what, you know, what do you remember well, that's about that? Not quite true, but I can, I'll, I'll tell you the whole story. I, I okay. was in Yankee Stadium, the Milwaukee Brewers. I think it was eighty. I don't know eighty six. There was a year that we had a strike, so we had a shortened postseason play. And I was at third base, and of course, back in there, Yankee Stadium, that's when everybody was running on the field, either the straight the streakers or whatever, <laughs> but it was quite popular to run on the field back then. Right. And I was just staying at third base. I hadn't had a call all day, and uh, all of a sudden, this fan came out, and uh, he, he runs out onto the field, and he kind of came from my back. Nettles playing third base. He looks over at him, and he kind of like falls down at the back of my legs and I've got a pitcher and it's a good one. He falls at the back of my leg and Nettles kind of comes and he kind of falls and he's laying in front of me. But you know, in this photo, you don't see Nettles. You got the fan in there and he's, I'm over top of him and my fist is clenched. And, uh, <laughs> um, so I, I think I uh, ended up uh, defending myself, and the young man was intoxicated uh, in Yankee Stadium. The police really took care of him, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he uh, ended up going to court. Baseball uh, was going after him at that time because they wanted to stop any kind of fan violence. So it was quite a process. So that winter I was probably in court two, three times. Oh, my God. And uh, like I said, well, and he actually had a uh, – I think a knife in his pocket, so they had him for concealed weapon. But none of that ever happened. The kid was kind of so drunk he could hardly defend himself. That reminds me. That is a true story. It makes for a lot of fun. (laughs) I know Nettles was in Battle Creek uh, about two winters ago, and there was a whole bunch of fans that brought up that story to him. So (laughs) it's one of those things that happened. But thank God we don't see that now like we did for a while in baseball. 
wasn't uh, the Royals were playing up against the White Sox when some idiot. So they first they attacked Tommy Gamboa, the first base coach. But the year after that, people don't remember. Yeah. I, th- I think it was Laz Diaz. Isn't he like a black belt or something? They tried to attack him. Yeah, it was Laz uh, Diaz, and uh, and he's an ex Marine. Yeah, that's so, what it was. Uh, he uh, yeah he came up short in that uh, engagement <laughs> too. So, uh, but uh, yeah that that one really got a little more violent. Mine was not even close to that incident so but uh and this guy was again he was intoxicated and you know we all have a tendency to do things that's a little different when you've been drinking too right much. right okay well so i've got uh, several random fan questions that you know were tweeted to me to ask you so the first one is did you have a favorite catcher to umpire behind you know what as an umpire and you would say yes um, and for various reasons. Now, I don't know if a lot of the fans remember, but Bob Boone, yeah. uh, I'm telling you, when he caught pitches, his hands were so strong that he did. It, and you can ask any catcher in any organization, and they teach their catchers to make sure they can control a pitch, and so they keep it where it looks like a strike. It might be a ball, and they frame it, and it looks like a strike, and they'll get more pitches called strikes for their pitchers. So it's really, really something that some people are a lot better at it. But Bob Boone, and maybe not like a, I did like Bob. He was a fine, a good guy and, and, and a nice guy. But he made pitches look better than any catcher that I had been around, and been around a lot of good ones. Uh, Thurman Munson could catch pitches and make them look good. And, and I mean, there, there's hundreds of these young kids now that are really great, great defensive catchers. But uh, Bob Boone stands out as by far the best catcher I ever worked behind. So I'm guessing in the minor leagues you probably can hear the hecklers more because it's quiet. But how often do you actually hear hecklers in the big leagues? You know what? That's a good question, Dave, because, you know, there's so much – you know, if you have a close play, it's all one kind of roar at one time, and you, you really can't hear them. In the minor leagues, you can pick them out. I mean, I can remember going up to Sherbrooke, Canada, and I, the, this one guy would be there every time. And it was Riley this, Riley that, and because and, there's 50 people in the stands. But in the major leagues, it, it's full most every night. So you really, I mean, yeah, you can hear them, but uh, – uh, uh, you can hear hear him. <laughs> Sorry, but someone came to my door. Oh, it's okay. And and, and uh, so you can hear him, but uh, you uh, it, it's it, it's completely different when there's fifty people in the stands or if there's fifty thousand. So it, it it's not the big leagues is where you want to work. You don't get the hecklers like you you do in the uh, in the minor leagues. What's the funniest thing you ever heard a fan yell at you? Was there ever like a heckle that actually kind of made you laugh underneath that mask? <laughs> well, let's. I uh, I don't know something about you know. Hey Riley, your your wife your wife. Let's see what if I'm trying to think that story. I walked off. <laughs> oh, one day a lady. I, I walk off the field and the lady said, you know. And this lady was really homely and and really not a very attractive gal. And I walked <laughs> off and she said, you know, Riley, if I was your wife, I'd give you poison for dinner tonight. <laughs> and I looked back at this and she wasn't very attractive. So 
I told her, I said, if I was your uh, husband, I'd probably take that poison. <laughs> so, um, so I had to, I had to let her know that. And, uh, and that's how that went. But, uh, it, uh, uh, you know, when you're in the, the moment, some things aren't quite as funny as, as normal, but like I said, as an umpire, you, you're used to it and you understand what fans are about and they're there to root for their team and they want their team to win. And we're in a position where we, um, we have a job to do and whether it's, you can't make the most popular call all the time. And, you know, it's kind of funny just the other night in, in the NC2A with the Virginia, when they called the foul on the guy mm-hmm. and, uh, I mean, it, it was a foul. And he had to make the call. Was it a popular call? Absolutely not. Auburn didn't want that foul called on him. So um, you have to make those calls, and you have to be able to do that. And that's what makes your really good major league umpires and your average major league umpire. So um, it's just making a tough call when a tough call has to be made. Now, speaking of that, that's a perfect segue to my next question. In your opinion, who's the best umpire you've ever seen behind the plate in Major League history? Okay. Um, the best um, balls and strike umpire, and, and we, we've, we've got a lot that are currently umpiring, but one guy that I broke in, and he was my very first crew chief, and his name was Bill Haller. Okay. And... Um, and Bill is still alive, and his brother Tom was a catcher for the Giants and the Tigers. <clears throat> but I always thought Bill Haller was the best balls-and-strike umpire I've ever seen. And again, that was in a little different era, though, when back then we called more strikes than the guys call now. Um, baseball at one time, and we had two different strike zones, really, between the American League and the National League. American League would call the higher strike nationally because of that inside chest protector would call the lower strike a little more. And, um, but when we combined staff and became one, the strike zone actually became a little smaller. I think the American league, the high strike was brought down to where the national league was calling more of the low pitches. So I think nowadays you see a much more consistent strike zone from umpire to umpire to umpire instead of the old days, because they'd always say, ah, this guy's a pitcher's umpire. He calls more strikes. Well, nowadays, there's not that much difference, if there's any difference between umpire to umpire. It's amazing how good the umpires actually are. Like The last two years, I've really started paying attention. Like 90% of the current umpires are really, really good. Um, So I think our guys are trained now. You know, we have... We have what they, after every game, the umpire's given a disc of, of every pitch that's throwing and thrown, and it shows it in the strike zone. It shows where it went, entered the strike zone, where it exited the strike zone, where it crossed, and uh, it's driven by six different uh, computer uh, cameras that they have just for the umpires, and it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely helped the guys become more consistent and uh, and and has driven the consistency to the strike zone where it's very good. And I know there's games. And every umpire is rated from 100, percent 
you know, and I would say the average, I know when I was on the staff, the average was like 96% the guys were getting pitches right behind the plate. So um, it, it, it's just a testimony to how good the guys really are doing now. Now, who are your best friends that were MLB umpires during your career? Well, I'm very fortunate I had a lot of them, but uh, I – I mean, uh, the current guys that are still, Jeff Kellogg is somebody that I respect more than anybody on the staff. I think, uh, in fact, if you ask me who's one of the better balls and strike umpire, he, he, he would stand out. And uh, the way he handles himself on the field and, and the way he works, uh, I would have to say I, I think he's the best. Uh, but there, there's so many of them. I mean, I could go on and on about the guys that I think are, are very good and 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 they all do a great job and I think what makes some umpires a little bit better is how they handle themselves and in, in situations the game has changed drastically from when I worked and this is coming from an older umpire I think it was harder to umpire back seven eight years ago before replay took over we no longer have arguments in baseball. I mean, yeah, there's certain things that they'll come out, but most of the time review will either concur with the umpire or they change it. And so there's not the arguments like we used to have. So when I came into the baseball and we had the Earl Weavers and the, the Billy Martins, and so you had to know how to argue. And that was a part of being a very good umpire is knowing how to handle people in stressful situations. And I mean, you had level-headed guys like a Whitey Herzog, uh, you know, the Billy Gardner's, the uh, Tom Kelly's guys that were like this, but then you, we had the, like I said, the Weavers and the Martins and stuff. And so you, you had to know how to get along with those people, even when you knew you were right, but they thought you were wrong. And, and then there's the chance that, hey, I might have made a mistake. So sometimes you had to listen a little bit more. So they've taken out that part of baseball, and I don't like it. And, uh, and so I do believe, even though replay has caused it to be uh, – I mean, you got to be up on everything on replay as far as what's review, when you can review, when a manager can do this. So there's a lot more that the umpires have to be aware of. But they have also taken out that big argument, and uh, I don't think we see quite as many ejections as we used to do in the old days. And uh, so I think, consequently, it, it, it might be a little easier to uh, uh, call the game from from the old days. So uh, I know in the early days, and like I said, I came up to big leagues when I was 25 years old, and I looked like I was 20. And just because of my age and my first year in the big leagues, people would challenge me. And uh, so till I built up a reputation about what I could do on the field and how I handled myself and how I handled the game, uh, people would test me. And once this, uh, Bill Haller, like I said, the first he would always tell me, he said, Mike, you make your reputation in your first four years in the big leagues. And what you do in your first four years will make your last, 30 years, much easier to work. And, and he was 100% right because you went out there and you let people know what you would take and what you wouldn't take and, and how you handled yourself, and and then you would be able to move on. So nowadays with replay, you just don't see it anymore. So 
what's the uh, speaking of arguments? What's the angriest or most colorful situation you ever had? Did you ever have a manager that you could tell was like about to have a heart attack? He was so angry. Did that ever happen? Well, I, I mean, I, I have seen guys obviously upset over various things because, like back then, I mean, you did argue. I mean, you would come out and say, you know, hey, and, and now, now they just wait and look at the replay and. Yeah. And then they go out and say, hey, check the replay. And so there, there's no argument. But, yeah, in the old days, I mean, you know, we all see George Brett after the home run in Yankee <laughs> Stadium, how he just went completely, you know, berserk, which was n- not even close to George's personality. George was, to me, one of the most level-headed, nicest guy, player. He was phenomenal. Great personality on the field, great personality to talk to and he was always fun to be around out there but everybody sees him when he came out of the dugout there in yankee stadium but uh and then of course we had managers like that also boom you know they just didn't understand that hey you know this guy's gonna be right a lot more than he's wrong and you know then they'd get back and then sure enough the next day hey i gotta apologize i I saw it on replay and uh, you were right and i was wrong i mean that happens but so the game has changed so much now, Dave, that it's just, it's not quite the same game. And for an old purist of baseball, I don't know if I, uh, I enjoy it as much for that aspect. I hate to take out the human element of anything, but I certainly understand with the technology that we have nowadays that uh, we just can overturn a glaring mistake. And, you know, when you think about in the past on a couple calls, like uh, the Jim Joyce and the perfect game in Detroit where he missed the play mm-hmm. at, at first base, and then obviously Don Denkinger's call in the World Series. If we had had replays in there, you would have never heard of Don Denkinger, and you never would have heard of Jim Joyce. So uh, it, it, it's replay is probably better for the umpires than it is almost the game itself. I thought Dickinger did a hell of a job in that game, personally. <laughs> That's just me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and Don was one of our – Don was, <laughs> in his prime of his umpiring career, was as good as we had. And yeah. I was fortunate enough to work with Don, and he was a really, really good guy, and uh, and his wife, Gail, and we did a lot of things together uh, in the off seasons. And, and whenever there was a big game in the American League, they would ask Don Dickinger at that time to work it. So – uh, he was just unfortunate. He, you know, we're all human. There's a chance you're going to make a mistake, and he happened to make the mistake. And why? I, you know, who knows? Like I said, he could have a hundred plays like that, and he would get them. He'd get 99 of those right and miss the one. Well, the one he missed was in a pretty, you know, big stage, and and he could never, you know, every time you heard about Don Dinger, it was in a negative way just because of that one call. But, the people that knew him and the people in baseball knew that he was a very, very good umpire. And the Royals still would have won that game, by the way. I still contend that. So the other thing, yeah, ab- that's true about arguments is, uh, did you have like in the movies you like see you know the manager comes out and asks the umpire to throw him out? Did that ever happen where you could tell somebody was just trying to get thrown out to fire the team up? Does that ever happen in your career? Yes, it did. I had it in Cleveland, and, and the manager's name was Dave Garcia one of the nicest guys you ever wanted to meet. And he would very seldom would argue. And I had to play at first base. And uh, obviously it didn't go his way. And Dave came out and he said, Mike, he said, the fans and my 
team. I'm out here. He says, I think you got this play right, but I got to get thrown out of this game. So my team believes that I'm there and I'm protecting them. And that, and I said, okay. I, I said, he, I said to him, I said, Dave, say something. He says, well, I'm not going to curse. So just throw me out. And so eventually I just threw him out of the game and, and that was it. But that's the only time I ever had that because most of the time in the arguments are for real. But this one time <laughs> He, uh, he did want to get thrown out, and he wanted to show his team that uh, he was there to protect them and uh, and also the fans. So, yeah, well, that's you, the one time. So I'm I'm guessing you you hate this as much as I do. So the Atlantic League, we talked a second ago about you know the human element. So they're trying that automated strike zone this season with robot umpires, which I think is the dumbest thing in the history. It's not real baseball. D- do you ever see that happening in MLB? Is there ever a chance of that? Well, Dave, I'm like you. I hope it doesn't happen. I mean, it just, I mean, can you, man, I mean, I haven't even, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen a clip of how that works. I knew they were doing it, but they've still got an umpire behind this camera that's, or this computer that's saying it's a ball or strike because someone has to do the check swing. Someone's got to, if there's a play at the home plate, someone's got to call it. So they're, they're eliminating phases of the home plate umpire's duties, which obviously the big one is calling balls and strikes, but I think the guys are, are good enough at it that it, it just takes way too much away from the game. I mean, it's, I mean, the, the hitters are still going to swing at bad pitches every once in a while, and so they make a mistake. The pitchers are going to throw a mistake pitch and Someone's going to get a home run off that mistake. And so you're not going to take the human element away from the pitchers uh, or the catchers or the fielders. They're going to make errors. So as long as we're as good as we are at what we do, I think you just say it's part of the game and that's the way it, that's the way it should be played. I, I can't imagine the game out there with the, with the computer telling you if it's a ball or a strike. Agreed. Agreed. Is there ever such a thing as a pitcher getting squeezed? Do you hear people say, oh, he's getting squeezed today? Does that really exist? I mean, is there ever tiffs or anything like that? Well, I don't think, in fact, I know it doesn't happen on purpose because, like I said, as, as you know, a longtime umpire, you want to go out there every day and get every pitch you possibly can get. I can remember one of the happiest days I ever worked at Park, uh, worked and it was out in San Francisco, and it's when we had the Quest Tech machine. And I came in, and I saw my grade, and it was 100%. It means I didn't miss a pitch that day. Wow. Um, and that doesn't happen. For, that happened to me twice in my whole career it, when we started using those machines. And it, it's just impossible when you think the ball's coming 100 miles an hour. It's, it's, it's sliding up and down, in and out. You're trying to hit a 17-inch plate, and you've got to be consistent enough to get every one of those two or 300 pitches that you're going to have to call in a game right. And uh, it, it's an impossible thing to do. It's an impossible thing to ask someone to be perfect at. But we strive to do it. So there, there, there is going to be sometimes in the course of a game where a pitcher may throw a pitch uh, in the strike zone, and for some reason you don't see it well. Maybe you're not prepared for the movement on the ball. And you call it a ball, and it's a strike. And it certainly wasn't done intentionally to squeeze the pitcher. And sometimes it's compounded with multiple times that you might miss a pitch. So 
and they'll say, yeah, you know, he's he's squeezing the pitcher. But in you know, the old days, we had a pitcher by the name of Catfish Hunter, and by far the best control pitcher I've ever seen. Him and Greg Maddox, those two guys, if you would call it a ball and it was a half an inch outside, they'd bring it in a half an inch, and you'd call the strike, and they'd stay there the rest of the game. That's how good they are at control. But a lot of our pitchers aren't like that. They're inconsistent also. They throw a pitch here, a pitch there, a pitch here, a pitch there, and makes it much tougher for an umpire to stay consistent when the pitching's not consistent. So when you've got pitchers like Greg Maddox, John Smoltz, uh, you know, people like that that have a reputation of throwing strikes and staying in the strike zone, it's much easier to umpire. Okay. So the guys that are that are a little wilder, are a lot harder to work and a lot harder to, harder to stay consistent with. And, but that's what every umpire strives to be, is be consistent. When you call that pitch in the first inning, you're still calling it in the ninth inning. The score does not matter where it is. It is up to that umpire to, to get that same pitch in the first that he gets in the ninth as a strike or a ball. Okay, so that actually leads me perfectly to my next question. So it's a really cold day, let's say, 25 degrees, or you're in the top of the fifth inning and there's rain nearing and there's a seven-run game. Um, is it hard to not widen the strike zone in, in certain situations or, or maybe even a 3-0 count, for example? Oh, absolutely. And, 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 you know, there is times where, like, say, you got to get one out and it's an official game and you might have an 8 nothing game and, you know, you want to get an official game. The players don't want games and come back and play a game, you know. And, and really, you don't want to widen the strike zone, but let's put it this way. When it comes to you don't want to miss a strike. That might be an out and get you into an official game. So you really, that's a tough situation for an umpire to be in when it gets close in a range situation. Everybody wants the game to be official. The players want it officials, uh, the managers, and the umpire. You want to get an official game in and so you don't have to make it up the next day. But you, you can't go out there and make up things to get them either. I mean, you, 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 the guy's either out or safe or it's a ball or strike. So expanding the strike zone in that situation is not what you'd like to do, but you don't want to miss a pitch in that, that circumstances. That would lead you not to get an official game. What's something you wish more fans knew about umpires? How much they care every day to go out and be perfect. And a lot of days you do go out and you're very good. And that at the end of the game, you're mad if you've made a mistake. I know it would eat me up. I'd go back to the hotel after, you know, we'd go in, look at the replay, and, and I missed a call on the bases or say. And how how mad I was at, you know, going, you know, yep, that guy, that foot's on the bag, and, and I should have called him safe. He was safe, and you know, and how I don't think fans understand that when umpires do make a mistake, how it really, really gets to them. And uh, like I said, I always considered my opponent in the game of baseball when I was umpiring was the game itself. So I competed. I didn't have a team to beat. I didn't have a town to represent. But I had the game that I had to represent. And I, my concentration was going out there and trying to be 100% every day. And I can honestly say I did that every day. I didn't achieve my goal because I wasn't perfect every day because that's impossible. So, But 
compete against the game and try to be perfect. And then there's no better feeling to go into your locker room after you had a very close call, maybe a big argument, and you look at the replay and you're right. Huh. And vice versa, when you go in after a big argument and a game and you look at a replay and you're wrong, that it, it, it's tough, tough to swallow when we think we're right most of the time. So that's what the guys do. And, and again, that's what the replay now takes it out because as badly as the umpires still want to get them correct, they understand that that replay is going to bail them out. And you're never going to hear your name in the headlines that, uh, uh, Riley missed a call in the ninth inning that caused the Royals to not score two runs or something. So now with replay, you don't have that anymore. How often when you missed a call, did you know that you missed it right away? Uh, well, not often, but there is times when you, you know, and then, you know, there's also the element of, you know, you call on a very close play and now you have to eject a player. Obviously the player thought you were wrong. And then now the manager comes out and he, he also would argue and you go, God, I must've missed that. I mean, like say a George Brett who wouldn't never was an adamant complainer. So he had a call that went against the George Brett type player who never argued. And you go, God, I must've missed that if George Brett argued or something, you know, it's just one of those things. But, uh, you know, it happens that, that we make mistakes and we know we make mistakes. And then there's times when we think we might have made a mistake and then you walk in the locker room and say, no, they were wrong. I was right. So that's trying to be perfect. And you know, there's only one guy in the world that's ever been perfect. And the sad thing about that, they put him on a cross. So uh, that's kind of what we think of as an umpire. We, we put ourselves out there to try to be perfect. Fair enough. Well, last few questions for you. Um, circling back okay. to KC, since we're at KC website, obviously. What, what are your favorite memories of umpiring in Kansas City? i tell you one of my favorite memories, and I wasn't umpiring. I, it was the all, first All-Star game in, in Royal Stadium. While I was in the minor leagues, I was in the Florida State League. I was working with an umpire from Illinois. His name was Dick Adams. And uh, we had three days off in the minor leagues also at the same time. And so I was able to get tickets for Dick and myself, and my mom and dad came down from Lincoln, Nebraska, and we sat in the stands uh, and uh, watched that all-star game. And then at the end of the game, I was able to go into the Major League umpire locker room, and Billy Williams at that time was the home plate umpire. We got to speak with him. So that was a big thrill for me as far as uh, – uh, Kansas City, and my first uh, trip, actually, first time I'd ever been in Kansas City was for that All-Star game, but uh, I worked uh, playoffs assignments in Kansas City throughout the years. Uh, I just remember what a great city Kansas City was, the fans, the, the ballpark. Uh, it's a timeless ballpark there. To me, when I retired in 11, it was the same ballpark that I went to in 1977, and they made it better with their improvements there in, in those years and it's just a beautiful ballpark and uh and and, and the fans I, you know i know the players say that too but the umpires also say that and they, they appreciate the fans and i always appreciated the fans in kansas city because they were they were they were good people and it was always fun to go to that ballpark and uh, be part of that organization the royals organization the class organization and uh, it was always fun to go into Kansas City. And get some barbecue, too, right? The barbecue was good. And I remember the heat being awful. <laughs> uh, and uh, 
but uh, no, the city itself and, uh, and it, it, the organizations. Organization makes uh, cities, and uh, the Royals did a phenomenal job. And uh, it, it was fun to go into that ballpark and work every day. I guess I didn't realize till recently, like dozens and dozens of umpires go to the Quaff here in town. Did you ever go to the Quaff back in the day, the bar here in Kansas City? Yeah, the old Quaff. That was that was our place. We went there every day, and uh, <laughs> after every game, we'd go there and unwind and maybe have a beer or two, and uh, and just unwind and talk to the. The owners were phenomenal friends to us, and it, it was like home to us. They treated us like uh, family, and uh, it, it was, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. We went to Steve Palermo's wedding in Kansas City, and we were all dressed up, and we had coat and ties, and we actually had a limousine, and a lot of our, our wife had never been to the quaff. So we were downtown and, and by the fountains where the, the wedding was and all that. And then, so after the wedding, we said, well, let's, let's go have a drink someplace. And we said, hey, we got this little French bar called the Quaff, and it's a nice place to go. So all these girls are all dressed up to the nines, and we're all dressed up well. The Quaff's a great place, but it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of your neighborhood pub. So... We were very well overdressed, and uh, but when we got there, the girls had a ball, and they got to meet the people that we run across with during the summer. And so, yeah, the quaff was very much a part of our lives when we went into Kansas City, just like the barbecue. I love it. How often do you actually get? Did, did you get recognized? Did baseball fans ever rem- remember what you looked like very often, like on the street back in the day? Yeah, you know the yeah. I mean, obviously not to the extent of players, but after you're there. You know, going to cities for a long time, and a lot of the avid baseball fans—you'll see them out during the day. Or, I mean, yeah, you would be recognized. And I always considered myself more of a lower, lower keyed umpire than I didn't care to be out front. I, I always had the philosophy: I like to walk out of the ballpark at night, and people not know me, uh, recognize me, because if they recognize me, then probably something happened that where I was in the limelight where i like to be in the back part of the limelight so but yeah uh and and again when we travel these cities as many years as we do uh you find the same hotels and same restaurants and uh so you go in there and see see the people and uh i know whenever i went to baltimore i always went to little italy and i would eat in the restaurants there so got to know the people there Kansas City, the same thing between the cough, cough, and various other restaurants. You, you, you would see people you'd see all the time. So that's the only thing. I, that's the one thing I miss about the game. And since my retirement, is that I don't get to the cities that I used to work in for all those years, and then and uh, get to see the people that I was very good friends with throughout the years. So that, that's probably that, and not being around the guys like I used to. Those are the uh, the two things I miss the most. Fair enough. Well, my very last question for you, uh, in summary, what would you like to say to baseball fans listening right now? Well, to the hard baseball fans is that uh, uh, it's the greatest game played. There's no doubt about it. It's when you put a pitcher against a hitter and, and what that pitcher has to do to get that hitter out and the way the game is played. I'm tired of people saying the game is too slow. I'd like to see it played faster. But it's a great game, and uh, the strategy and uh, the pitcher trying to overpower the hitter and 
and defense, and it's just a phenomenal game played by phenomenal athletes and phenomenal people running it and phenomenal people umpiring it and phenomenal people in the media. And, you know, that's one thing. There's a lot of people in the media that I miss that you get to know the beat writers and all the guys that are always around. And and, uh, I used to tell the guys that would come in and write, hey, listen, uh, don't just come in when there's a controversial call on the field. Come in and talk baseball with us all the time. I said, I guarantee you, you'll learn more coming in this umpire in the locker room than you'll learn going in and talking to the players. One thing you talked about Ernie Harwell earlier in the conversation Ernie Harwell would stop by the locker room every day before every game, and whether he spent two minutes or 15 minutes, and he would sit there and talk baseball with you, and he would take stuff from what he just learned from the umpire's locker room and take it up to the booth where the fans would understand the other aspect of this game. And I think that's what truly made him one of the best ever, is that uh, he went and learned. and. That, that's the great thing about our game. It's, it's the best, and, uh, and it's the best from every aspect of it. So I love it, and I miss it. Man, I, I read an article about Ernie Harwell recently. I didn't realize he did this. There'd be a foul ball, and he would just make up a fan in a city. He'd say, oh, look, oh. and Jessica's here today from Battle Creek. <laughs> uh, and he, he absolutely would. And if you'd be in Canada... He, he he would make up a Canadian city that uh, he, he was incredible. I'm just telling you, the fans that got the opportunity to hear him. And I remember going to bed at night with a transistor radio in my ear, listening to Ernie Harwell do baseball. It, it's it's you know him and Vince Scully. Those guys are just I don't know. They're just the best. Hey, when Ernie was the nicest person. I mean, you wouldn't even swear around him. He was that, that kind of man. He just, you, you had just tons of respect for him. And he's just a little old guy. And, and, uh, I remember sitting there one time and he put his foot up and he had a, uh, on his leather shoe, he had a big hole on the bottom of it. And Ernie didn't care. <laughs> a lot of guys wouldn't even think about wearing a shoe like that, but Ernie didn't care. So that was, uh, like I said, tremendous man, and we have those all over baseball, so that's the good thing. Absolutely. Well, you know, from the time I was 13 years old and I first knew who you were from my my uh, you know, one of my friends that I guess your parents live by him, and I got a signed baseball of you. I traded a couple signed basketball cards to get a signed baseball from you, and I still have that. And I, as I got older and learned about baseball and started following in and out and played baseball, and you're you know one of my favorite uh, umpires of all time, definitely one of the best, most consistent, you know, very good strike call and you know the game misses you but it's it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh and hearing about your story and uh thanks for all the great memories and and for talking baseball with us well dave thank you very very much i appreciate you reaching out and and again it was fun for me